We're going to be in the book of Mark chapter 9 tonight. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there, open up with me. We have been, as a church, going through the Gospel of Mark together, taking selections from the Gospel of Mark. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus' triumphal entry in Palm Sunday. On Good Friday, we'll look at the passages in Mark of his betrayal and his arrest and crucifixion. On Easter Sunday, obviously, we'll read about his resurrection. We'll have a few more weeks after that to kind of finish up our survey of Mark's Gospel. We're in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14 tonight. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read straight through the passage, pray, and then spend some time unpacking it with you together. So if you have your Bibles, read along with me. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that any time we want to hear you speak, we can open the scriptures and you speak to us. And God, I do pray you would do just that tonight. Would you speak to us? God, we confess that like the father of the boy in this story, we come with a measure of belief, but also a measure of unbelief. We come with a measure of faith, but God, our faith is weak and there's holes in it. And God, I pray you would grant us the honesty to be able to say, where we're weak and where we're in need of your grace. God, I pray tonight you would guard my lips. Let me only speak that which is truth from your word. God, I pray for all of us, you would give us soft hearts, receptive hearts, hearts that want to hear your truth. We pray that our eyes would be focused on Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. So this, this week I had a family night uh, with my, my wife and my daughters at home. I've got four daughters at home, ages 10, 8, 5, and 2. So a bunch of little girls in the house. So naturally for family night, uh, we watched the new Annie movie. You guys heard of Annie? You know, the Little Orphan Annie is the re-release of it. It's a good movie. Two thumbs up, this pastor says. Uh, but what was fun was the way that they redid the songs. And of course, the classic song from the movie Annie is which one? Tomorrow, right? The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar. You're welcome. Now you're all going to be singing it for the rest of the week. I love you. That song is a, an optimistic, hope-filled song that basically says, look, times are tough. Things are difficult. But if you just keep your hope up, if you just have a little bit of faith, things are going to get better tomorrow, I promise. 
And I knew that I was going to be teaching on this passage this Sunday. I knew I was going to be preaching about the subject of faith. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to be, I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to put together a whole playlist of songs that speak to the uplifting power of faith. I need to really get in that faith sort of mood. So I went on Spotify and I put together a playlist. I'll share some of these songs with you. The first song I put in my playlist of hope, faith, and optimism was a little song called Don't Stop Believing" by Journey, right? Do I get an amen from anybody on that? That's a good song. You have to wait for seven and a half minutes before you finally get, don't stop believing, but it's worth it. Trust me. Second song I put into my playlist was Roar by Katy Perry, because why not? I do have the eye of the tiger, right? And I am a survivor. Or maybe because my daughter snuck it in when I wasn't looking. The third song on this one, how could, I, how could I make a playlist on faith without including this song, Faith by George Michael, right? The song that made his solo career. And I did, I, I don't know if you've listened to Faith by George Michael anytime recently. If you have, I'm so sorry for you. The lyrics to that song are insipid. It is basically a song that says, you cheated on me. Well, I've cheated on you too, but you really hurt me. I'm going to find a better girlfriend in the future. I just got to have faith. It's really dumb. Okay, moving on. That one wasn't as encouraging as I thought it was going to be. Oh, the best one. The best one in my whole playlist was this song, Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi, right? Anybody with me on that song? Here's what's great about that song. In the chorus of the song, John Bon Jovi sings the lyrics, take my hand, we'll make it, I swear. And in the pre-chorus of the song, he says, it doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. It's like, wait a minute. You just contradicted yourself in two completely uh, you know, concurrent sections of the song. I think the moose has soaked into your brain, bro. I love those songs, and the, the idea of positivity and optimism got me really thinking about our culture's definition of the word faith. The way our culture uses the word faith is essentially the way that little orphan Annie uh, explains it in the song tomorrow. It's basically be optimistic, be hopeful, stick it out, and good things are going to happen to you. Trust me, it gets better in the future. Just keep trying. Be positive. And while there's certainly nothing wrong with being optimistic, while there's certainly nothing wrong with keeping a positive attitude, what I would say to you is our culture's use of the word faith in that way falls far, far short of the biblical definition, the biblical understanding of what faith truly is. And what's particularly heartbreaking is our culture's definition of faith promises something that it cannot deliver. It promises something that it has no power to actually see come true. Just stay positive, stay optimistic, and tomorrow things are going to get better, I promise. Well, what happens when they don't? What if things actually get worse tomorrow? What are you supposed to do then? Particularly heartbreaking, I, I came across a news story this week. It's a few years old. But any of you probably remember a few years ago, there was a public service ad campaign that ran on, I think it was on NBC, and they, they ran these commercials all the time called It Gets Better. And these, these public service ads were targeted towards teenagers who experienced same-sex attraction, whether homosexuality or bisexuality or transgender or those sorts of things that our culture has adopted wholesale. And basically what the message was, I know it's hard right now, people tease you, make fun of you, and bully you, but just trust me, it gets better one day. Stick it out, be hopeful, be optimistic, and one day it gets better. And there was a particular heartbreaking story of a young man who was 15 years old who actually recorded one of these types of videos, put it up on YouTube, got millions of views, and within the year had actually committed suicide and taken his own life because it, in fact, did not get better for him. The point of that is that our culture's definition of faith falls far short of the biblical understanding of faith, and it is actually a cruel bait and switch. So what does a biblical understanding of faith look like? Before we dive into this passage, let's take a minute and just survey quickly the scriptures and see what, it ha what, what faith has to do with us and what faith actually looks like. I'm going to give you five things, hopefully briefly here. The first thing is this. Faith is focused on God and gospel. Faith is focused on God and gospel. You know, sometimes when our culture says, you, you know, you got to have faith, it's just kind of a generic, you just need to have faith. And I always ask, faith in What? Faith in faith itself? Faith in my circumstances getting better? God forbid, faith in myself? I don't know if you know this, I'm the reason why I got into the mess in the first place. You want me to have faith in myself to get myself out of the mess? 
That reminds me of a, one comedian who said, I tried to teach myself guitar, except I didn't know how to play guitar, so I was a terrible teacher, right? God forbid you just have faith in yourself. Now listen, is it wrong to, to be positive or, or try to believe in yourself? Absolutely not. But when we're talking about faith, the biblical definition of faith is that God is the object, our faith is focused on God. Listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews in 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But our faith in God is not merely a generic faith in God in some, uh, some sort of loose, oh, I just kind of believe in God. No, no, no. There's a very specific type of faith in God. It's a faith in his gospel, that God is the kind of God who is willing to enter into the mess of human existence to seek and save and redeemed lost and stumbling sinners like you and like me. Listen to what uh, Paul says in Romans 1.16. He says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the, the Gentile world. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And in case you were wondering, that quotation at the end, the righteous shall live by faith, faith that is from an Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk. That verse is the most commonly quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It is a massive theme of the New Testament that we live by faith in God and his gospel. We don't just have a generic type of faith. We have a specific faith that says God sent his son Jesus to die and to rise again that we might be saved. Second thing I want you to see about the biblical definition of faith is that it does include hope and belief and, and some of those optimistic things that we talked about, but it also includes risk and perseverance. Hebrews 10.39 says this through 11.1, through We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we're of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So faith there is tied to perseverance, continuing on, not just saying one time, oh yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in the gospel, but sticking it out to the end of your life. Now faith, he defines it, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. With faith, true biblical faith, there's always an element of risk. We cannot put God into a laboratory. We cannot put the gospel into a math equation and prove it scientifically the way that our, our senses would want. There's always an element of risk. We do not see God face to face. Not yet anyways. Give you, by way of an analogy, I grew up in the state of Alaska. I grew up in the city of Anchorage mostly. The capital city of Alaska is Juneau. But Juneau is on an island and it's really hard to get to. In fact, it's more expensive to fly from Anchorage to Juneau than it was to fly from Anchorage to Seattle. That's a cheaper plane ticket. And so for my entire life growing up in the state of Alaska, I never, not even once, went to the capital city of Juneau. I have never seen it with my own eyes. I just have to take it on faith that it actually even really exists. Oh, sure, I have friends who say that they've been there, and I've seen things on the internet written about it, and you know you can believe everything on the internet. I even have college buddies who are there working now, but I've never personally seen it with my own eyes. There's an element of faith involved, believing that Juno even exists. Do you see how that works with, with God? There's an element of, of risk there. We don't see God. We don't grasp him with our hands or experience him with our senses the way that we experience many other things in life. With God, there's always that element of risk and, as the writer of Hebrews would tell us, the element of perseverance, sticking it out. Third thing I want you to see about faith from a biblical perspective is that faith does not ignore challenges or difficult circumstances. Faith defies them. Faith defies challenges and difficult circumstances. What do I mean when I say that? Some would try to tell you that having faith, biblical faith, means that you essentially don't acknowledge that anything is wrong. Some people hold to what's called a word of faith type of theology in which all of the power is just in what you say. So if you say that you're not sick, well, then you're not sick. If you say you don't have problems, well, then you don't really have problems. You just need to speak those things into existence. Without being too rude, can I just say that's nonsense? The Bible is the most honest book that is ever written. The Bible does not shy away from difficulties. The Bible does not shy away from telling us the honest truth that in following Jesus, we will have trials, we will have setbacks, we will have hardships. However, what the Bible calls us to is to have faith in a God who is bigger than any of those things. 
So this is what Psalm 31 says. This is David writing. He says this, For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Does that sound like someone who is ignoring the difficulties in his life? No, it actually sounds like somebody who's maybe paranoid, but I can assure you he's not. He literally had people plotting to take his life and to kill him. But this is what he says. But I trust in you, O Lord, and I say, you are my God. I know what the problems are. I'm not ignoring them. I'm not putting my fingers in my ear and saying, la, 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 those don't really exist. No, I'm naming them. I'm owning them for what they are, and I'm saying my God is still better. Faith defies those challenging circumstances. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, so we're always of good courage. Courage. In the face of fear, in the face of challenging circumstances, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't experience God 100% as we will. One day, after Christ returns, we will experience him face to face. But right now we don't. There's a little bit of a distance and there's, there's challenges and there's trials. There's hardships we experience. Real biblical faith doesn't ignore those things, but it says that God is greater and he's worth it. Fourth thing I want you to see about faith. It's a gift of God and it comes from hearing his word. Some of you think mistakenly, if I just try harder to have more faith, I could willpower myself to having more faith. No, the Bible would say that faith itself, even faith itself is a gift from God. Look at what it says in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, what is this? All of that, this gift of salvation by grace through faith, all of it is a gift, is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. The way to get more faith it's not by gritting your teeth and clenching your fists and just trying harder, believe, you know, subscribing to my playlist of songs that I made earlier. That's not the way to get faith. The way to get faith is focusing on God, receiving it as a gift, and as Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You need to hear the word of God. I would encourage you, read the Bible. I would encourage you, Listen to biblical teaching and preaching. I would encourage you to feed yourself the scriptures daily because the enemy is busy trying to feed you lies. And if you don't combat the lies that you're hearing from the enemy with the truth of God's word, you'll be liable to believe that what he's saying is actually true. You need to feed yourself the word of God. You want your faith to increase? You want your faith to grow? It comes from hearing the word of God. Last thing, number five, I want you to see faith must be exercised. The analogy being that faith is kind of like a muscle. If you exercise it, if you work it out, it grows, it gets healthier and gets stronger. If you don't use it, it gets weaker and weaker and eventually would atrophy. So we see in Luke 17, the apostles praying, they're talking to Jesus and they say, increase our faith. How many of you know that's a good prayer for you to be praying? Lord, increase my faith. Or James chapter 2, verse 17 says this, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You can't just talk about how much faith you have in your heart and, and just leave it at that. Faith must be put into action through good works. You're not saved by your works, but you are saved unto good works. Or 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5 says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's battle language. That's warfare language. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Here it is. Here's our victory. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you see how our culture's definition of faith falls far short? Our culture just says, be positive. Be optimistic. Don't worry, be happy. Actually, I should add that to my playlist. That'd be a good song to put in there. The biblical definition is focused on God and focused on his gospel and hearing his word. So with that all as, as a, an explanation so we have a biblical understanding of faith, let's go to the text, verse 14 of chapter nine, and let's see what's happening here as regards to faith. Verse 14, 
When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Okay, let's set up the context here. When they came to the disciples, who's they? They is Jesus and his three closest companions, Peter, James, and John. If you go back earlier in the chapter, Jesus selected those three, his closest friends, and said, let's go away for a few days for kind of a special retreat time, a leadership retreat time. And then they get away, they go on the mountain. Who should show up but Moses and Elijah... And it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. They saw Jesus not in his humanity, but they saw his full divinity on display before them. A remarkable experience, a powerful spiritual experience where these disciples saw Jesus in full divinity. Peter even said, let's set up tents and just stay here. This is awesome. And Jesus said, no, we've got to go back. There's, there's more to be done. So here they're coming back to the other nine disciples. The other nine disciples who were left behind, I don't know, maybe they had a little bit of a, a chip on their shoulder. Maybe they were upset from being left behind. Either way, we see that a not good situation is happening here because they're arguing. There's a great crowd watching the argument and there's scribes arguing with them. Scribes were teachers of the law. They were religious experts who knew the first five books of the Bible from memory. Any of you guys think you have your Bible memorization planned down, I tell you what, they got you beat. So the scribes, the other nine disciples are arguing, and there's basically a great crowd around them. In my mind, I imagine them going, fight, 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 right? It's a bad scene. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed. They ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? What's going on? What's this, what's this fight? And someone from the crowd answered him. So somebody speaks up. Teacher, uh, I, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. Let me just briefly remind you of, of what the Bible teaches about demons. I won't spend a great deal of time unpacking this. A, a few weeks ago, I did a whole teaching, spent an entire teaching on Satan and demons and spiritual warfare. I'd encourage you, if you'd like, to, to go back and listen to that. But we believe that the Bible is true. We believe that the Bible teaches the truth of of God's word, we teach, believe the Bible teaches the truth about us and, and the way of the world. And so the Bible says that God has angels, ministering spirits who serve him and are messengers to do his will. The Bible teaches that a group of them rebelled against God, said, we will not have you for our king, we want to set up our own rebellious kingdom, and they fell from heaven, they fell from grace. They're called demons, and Satan is their leader. Satan is not God's equal. He is an angel. He's a created being, a fallen one, but he's the leader of this host of rebellious angels. And in our culture, it is not unacceptable to believe in God or even really oftentimes unacceptable to believe in angels. That's okay. But to believe in demons sometimes gets thrown out as being a, a relic of a bygone age. I would tell you it is no more illogical to believe in demons than it is to believe in angels. It's not illogical. It's not foolish. The Bible teaches clearly that there are both, and there's no reason to say that there would be positive good angels and not to say that there would be negative ones who are bent on destruction. And indeed, that is their mission statement, is to steal, to kill, and destroy. All that they do is focused on stealing, killing, and destroying. They hate God. They hate those who are made in the image and likeness of God. All of us, the human race. Now, one of the ways that demons work is through physical affliction, through sickness, through a physical malady. Now, hear me clearly. Not every sickness is the result of a demon, okay? If anybody sneezes during the rest of the sermon, I'm not going to rebuke you in Jesus' name, okay? But sometimes, one of the ways that demons harass and, and seek to steal, kill, and destroy is through Physical affliction, physical sickness, physical disease. And this is indeed what we see happening here with this young boy. On the surface, the, the symptoms look like what we might call a, a seizure or some sort of an epilepsy. But we see that it's more than just a regular epilepsy. It's not just regular seizures. It's something spiritual because in a minute, we're going to see that when Jesus shows up, this demon, this demonic spirit reacts in a particular way against Jesus. 
One of the major features of Jesus' ministry up to this point has been to cast out demons, and in doing so, he actually empowered his disciples to do the same thing. If you go back a few chapters, it says that Jesus sent his disciples out to preach, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. And it says that they came back really excited because they were doing the stuff. They were really preaching. They were really healing the sick. And yes, they were really casting out demons. So here we can see in this setup that something has gone wrong because Jesus' disciples are supposed to be able to cast out demons. What is wrong? Why are they not able to? The expectations that were on Jesus were now being put onto the disciples. So let's look and see what it is that's going on here. Verse 19, and he answered them. Now, this is the words of Jesus. Listen to this. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? And how long am I to bear with you? Let's just call this a moment of divine exasperation. Jesus is perfect. He's in no way, shape, or form sinful at all. But he is frustrated. Because whatever is going on here, whatever's happening here, it's, it's not faith. Oh, faithless generation. Whatever's going on here, it is not the disciples exercising faith. You know, we could paraphrase this as, how long do I have to hang around you guys and put up with you? It's not an an inaccurate paraphrase. He's divinely exasperated. And I also wonder, who's he frustrated with? Is he frustrated with the disciples for not being able to exercise faith, for not being able to do what it is that he trained them and empowered them to do? Is he frustrated with the scribes who are there picking a fight, probably saying, nah, 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 I told you you couldn't cast out the demon. Who do you think Jesus is? He's not the real Messiah. Is he frustrated with the crowds who are there just hoping to get a good show, either to see a a good fight or maybe somebody to do like a magic show? Who's Jesus frustrated with here? I think the answer is yes. A little bit all. I do think there is a special place, though, where Jesus is frustrated with his disciples for not living out what he has commissioned them to do. Oh, how long do I have to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately, there's our favorite word in the Gospel of Mark, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. You see that this is not just a regular seizure. This is not just a regular physical malady. It's spiritual in nature because it happened when the Spirit came into contact with Jesus, the greatest power in the universe. And Jesus asked the Father, how long has this been happening to him? Do you see Jesus' care and compassion? And he said, from childhood. Can you put yourself into the, the place of the father? We don't know exactly how old this boy is, but from childhood, since, since birth, since infancy, eight years, 10 years, 12 years, this boy has been falling to the ground, foaming at the mouth, seizing And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. I have almost lost my son multiple times. I'm afraid that one of these times he's going to die. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You have to remember that This man's faith has suffered a setback. He's there because he has some sort of idea. I've heard about these things that Jesus can do. I've heard about the things his disciples can do. Let's let's go to Jesus. This is discouraging. This has been a a long journey, a long battle of, of putting up with this suffering. Let's go see what Jesus can do. He shows up, and guess what the disciples do? Nothing. They mess it up royally. Maybe it was too good to be true. I came to Jesus looking for some answers, looking for some help, but it's probably stupid of me to think that anything could really happen. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you can identify at some point with that sentiment? God, I thought my life was going to look differently. God, I really thought circumstances were going to be X, Y, and Z. 
God, I came to your church. I came to your people, and I was let down. I was disappointed. God, I don't know. Can you do anything? If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can? I, I don't want to stretch this too far, but I don't see the tone of Jesus in this being, if you can, do you know who I am? I'm Jesus Christ, doggone it. Do you see what I'm capable of doing? Like, is that how you see Jesus' tone here? No. We see in a minute, he's going to meet, he's going to meet the Father in this place. If if you can, I kind of see Jesus almost like, really? Come on, buddy. If I can? And he says this beautiful line, all things are possible for the one who believes. All things are possible for one who believes. Let me just say that again to you. The power of the word of God. All things are possible for one who believes. What a powerful phrase. What a, what a ludicrous thing to say if Jesus was just a mere man or a good teacher. All things are possible for one who believes? You know, there's another story in the New Testament in one of the Gospels where Jesus uses almost this exact same phrase. It's after he'd had a conversation with a man who was really in love with his money. And the man goes away and the disciples are saying, man, this is, that did not turn out good. And Jesus said, it's really hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, in fact, it's, it's as hard as a camel going through the eye of a needle. It'd be like for us, you know, it's as hard as driving your Tahoe through the eye of a needle, right? And the disciples say, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Meaning, God is so powerful that he can even save and redeem a sinner who is more in love with their wealth than is in love with God. That's how powerful God is. Jesus here is saying, this is how powerful I am. This is how powerful your God is. I can do anything. I can do anything. Do you believe that, church? Does the God that you worship and serve, is he capable of literally anything? Now, I will say this. There have been some who will cherry-pick verses or take them out of context and will stretch the meaning of this verse, this, this beautiful promise of God and his power and his character, to try to make it say that essentially if you just believe hard enough and if you just have enough faith that God will do whatever it is that you want, Basically that God's kind of like a, a genie in a bottle and if you, you know, rub the lamp and if you say the right magic words, God will just do whatever you want or that he's like a, a jukebox because you just got to know the right combination of buttons to push in and he'll do whatever it is that you want. Is that what this scripture is saying? Absolutely not. God's, God's power is not a slave to our will. That's called manipulation. One of the commentators, uh, Robert Utley, puts it this way. He says... This is not a blank check for humanity, even believing humanity, to manipulate God, but a promise that God will do His will through believing faith. There are two conditions. One, God's will, and two, believing faith. So we cannot take this verse and stretch it out of context to say, if I just believe hard enough, if I just yell loud enough, if I just work up enough energy, God has to give me that promotion at work that I deserve. However, if there's a ditch on one side of the road, there's probably a ditch on the other side of the road. Some would overreact to that genie-in-a-bottle God approach and say, well, you know, I don't, I don't really want to presume upon God, and he's probably really busy too and doesn't have time to hear my prayers, and who, who even really knows what his will is anyway? It's probably just better to kind of grin and bear it, and one day I'll die and everything will be better, right? We don't approach God with a bossy, manipulative, you have to do what I say because I believe. But we also don't approach God like orphans, please, sir, may I have some more? Right? We approach God as beloved sons and daughters. 
And the point here, again, is not about how much faith we have, but the one in whom we have faith. He is capable of all things. He will do what is in his will, what is in his will to do, and we pray with faith in agreement with that. All things are possible for one who believes. And here is, this is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. The father shouts out this incredibly memorable phrase, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I am here because I do believe in you. I have some semblance of faith. I heard about your works. I heard about your claims, and so I'm here. But Jesus, if I'm being honest, my faith is weak and it's full of holes. I don't fully believe in you. I don't fully trust you. Will you help me? I'm in this place of, of tension. I do believe, I do trust, but you know my heart. You know that I have weaknesses in my faith. Again, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but have you ever felt that way? God, I, I do believe in you. I do trust you. I, I do believe that your word is true, but if I'm being honest, there are a lot of things I just don't get. I don't understand. I don't, I don't really believe. I say I believe, but I don't really believe. For those of you who are here who are not Christians, you want to believe. I, I think there's something here. I think there's something true. I keep listening to this, this, this people talk about the scripture. I keep hearing this story about Jesus. There's something there, but I just can't bring myself to believe. We're all, as Charles Spurgeon said, caught where we have proverbially two men within us at war, one who believes, one who doesn't. Which one are we going to Nourish. Which one are we going to feed? Which one are we going to let win? I believe. Help my unbelief. I, I, think, I think in this moment, this man is actually exercising much more faith than he realizes. You know why? Because he's coming to Jesus with humility and vulnerability and brokenness. Hey God, I don't have it all together. What do you think? Would you help somebody like me out? The scriptures say a broken heart and a contrite spirit, God will never deny. He'll never turn it away. How does Jesus respond? When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. So, so there's a scene starting to form. More people are showing up. What's gonna happen? What's, what's going on? He's seizing again. Something crazy is happening. Jesus just takes charge of the situation. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy, if you have a pen or a highlighter, underline these words, the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. Pulled the people, they said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Let's hold on to that. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now later, when the disciples had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be cast out by anything but prayer. Some of you might have a footnote in your Bible that says prayer and fasting. Um, we have different copies of the New Testament manuscripts. Some of them have prayer. Some of them have prayer and fasting. It seems like the oldest and the, the most reliable manuscripts don't have the word fasting in it. That seems like maybe it was a later addition. Somebody who was making a copy of the Bible added it in. Either way, the point being, it takes persistence. It's not a bad, bad idea to fast, okay? This type only comes out by prayer and fasting. I think, this is my opinion, but I think that Jesus is lovingly, gently rebuking these disciples because in their time when they stayed behind and didn't go with Jesus, they did not devote themselves to prayer and they were disconnected from their father. When the time came to exercise those faith muscles, they found out that they were weak and flabby. But the point is it takes persistence in prayer. Now, listen, the story is not over. I've, I've actually taught on this passage before and I've usually ended there. But I noticed something this week that I want to share with you that I think is incredibly important for us to see. Let's keep reading these last three verses. 
There's no natural break in the text. You may have a, a headline in your, in your Bible there, but in the text, it just goes straight in. And listen to this. They went on from there, and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. He, he was trying to keep a low profile because he was teaching his disciples, having some, some real deep heart-to-heart conversations. He was saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. I want you to remember back just a minute ago when I told you to underline those words. Because there's some really interesting parallels there. The boy, the young boy had come into an encounter with the forces of evil. And that encounter with the forces of evil left him like a corpse so that everyone who saw him said he is dead. But Jesus, in his grace and in his power, lifted him up and the boy arose. You guys know that in just a few chapters, we're going to read about Jesus' conflict with the forces of evil where Satan and demons would pour out all of their hatred of God onto Jesus and they would do their very worst. And in fact, it would leave Jesus not like a corpse, but actually dead and buried in the ground. But God, you see where this is going? In his grace and in his power, raised Jesus from the dead. Raised Jesus from the dead. Church, this story of Jesus uh, uh, casting out the unclean spirit from the young boy is not just a random miracle, but it is a parable, an enacted living parable of the fate that Jesus himself would go through in just a short period of time. That Jesus goes to the cross in our place for our sins and he dies a sinner's death. But just like Jesus raised up the little boy, so God the Father will raise up his son and Jesus would come back to life, resurrected, alive forevermore, so that those who trust in him could be saved. Church, I don't know if you know this, Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. We do not serve a dry, dusty rule book. We do not serve a dead religious founder. We serve a living, resurrected Savior. And indeed, that is where all of our faith begins and where all of our faith ends. It's not just faith for faith's sake. It's not just faith that God could heal or do a miracle. It's the faith that says God can literally breathe life into dead things. The Bible would say that you and I, apart from God, are spiritually dead. But when we become Christians, the Spirit of God breathes life into us and causes us to become alive with Christ. The Bible also says that even though we live in the flesh and one day our bodies will corrupt and decay and die, one day Christ will return. And all who trust in Jesus will, like Jesus, rise from the dead to receive a glorified, resurrected body, one that is free from sin and the effects of sickness and decay and death itself. I don't know about you, but that's pretty good news. That sounds like some good news. Here's how important the resurrection is when it comes to our faith. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 hangs all of the weight of all of our teaching and all of our preaching on the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus is not alive, this is a colossal waste of your time. You should go home and see whatever terrible 13 seed is playing in March Madness right now because it's better use of your time than what we're doing right now. If Christ has not been raised, I should say. Paul goes on to say, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. So we're not just lying, we're lying about God whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. But if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Church, I ask you, how important to you is the resurrection of Jesus? How important, when people ask you about the gospel, when people ask you about the good news, that you remember the resurrection? 
I'll tell you, the, the last few weeks, myself and the other pastors have been doing membership interviews with, with new members of Sound City Bible Church. And one of the questions we've been asking the members is, if you were going to explain the gospel to someone who is a non-Christian, what would you say? How would you explain it? Because we believe that the proclamation of Jesus and the proclamation of gospel is not just something that the pastors do, it's something that we all as Christians do. Amen? And so I've been asking people, how would you explain the gospel? If you haven't had your membership interview yet, let me give you a little hint. I want to hear you talk about the resurrection. I want to hear you talk about the fact that we have a Savior who is raised from the dead and who's alive forevermore. If you are not a Christian, this is where faith begins, This is what the Apostle Paul says in in Romans 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the linchpin of Christianity. I know it's not technically Easter. Easter is in a couple of weeks, but we're just getting warmed up, okay? You think I'm excited now? Come back and see me in two weeks. I love preaching about the resurrection because it is what makes the Christian faith different from any other religion in the world. Every other religion has a dead founder. We serve a living Savior, church. He's alive. He's alive. I want to share two things with you in closing, two takeaways that I, I hope will be encouraging to you this week as you meditate on this idea. First of all, Jesus' death was the ultimate act of faith. No matter how much faith you or I have, Jesus had more. How do we know that? Because in going to the cross, he had to trust in his father. There's a moment the night before his crucifixion when he's betrayed and arrested. Jesus is praying in the garden. He says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup be taken from me. If there's any other way we could go about this, please, Father, let me know. And then he says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus exercised all of the faith. You know what's interesting? We are saved by faith. But it's not even ours. It's Jesus' faith that led him to the cross that makes our salvation even possible. Jesus is more faithful than you or than me. And that's good news. Rather than focusing on how weak and and flabby your faith is, We focus on how perfect and good and strong his faith was. Jesus' death was the ultimate act in faith. When Jesus said that phrase, all things are possible for him who believes, Jesus is the one who believes. And for him, all things are possible, even the salvation of sinners like you and I. Second takeaway I want you to to hear is that God meets us in our weak faith. Isn't that good news? We are not required to have all of our faith you know, built up really big and strong before we can come to Jesus. No, like the father of this young boy, we come with weak and faltering faith and we find that Jesus accepts us right where we are. Do I want you to grow in your faith? Absolutely. Does God want you to grow in your faith? Absolutely. But the path to growing in faith, like I said before, it's not clenching your teeth and, and clenching your fists and just uh, trying harder. It's gazing into the beauty of God and his gospel, knowing that in his grace, he meets us where we are. There's a verse in 2 Timothy 3 that says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's our God, church. That's our God. I hope you needed some good news. Man, I'm excited about this. I wanna call you to a time of response now. We're gonna respond to this faithful God. We're gonna respond to this grace-giving God. We're going to respond to this God who breathes life into dead things. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. We give not out of duty or out of guilt or out of obligation, but we give because God in Christ has given us everything. This is even an opportunity for us to exercise faith. So I'll invite the financial stewards to come forward and collect the offering now if they would. And while they're collecting that, I would just say, if you're a guest, you're under no obligation whatsoever to give. We invite you to if you would like to. For those of you who are part of this church family, would love to have you give in faith to see that God would further the work of, of this ministry and, and, and what God is doing in and through this church. While they're collecting the offering, let's read through some discussion questions that you can talk about this week uh, in your community groups or in your home. So a couple things to, to get conversation started. First one is this. Does this story echo our own experiences? How do we react in crisis when our Faith is put to the test. Second question is kind of a two-parter. Where does, 
Where do our doubts come from just in general? Or more specifically, where do your doubts come from? Maybe you've had an experience like the father of the young boy who almost lost his son and his faith took a setback. Number three, where is your faith focused on your circumstances or focused on yourself instead of truly focused on God? Or maybe another way of asking that same question is, where is your faith weak? Number four, this phrase, all things are possible for one who believes. So what are some of the ways that this could be misunderstood or misapplied? Number five, how important is the resurrection? When you think of the gospel or the good news, do you remember this critical aspect? Don't forget the, the resurrection, church. We're resurrection people. Number six, how is God currently asking you to exercise your faith? As we respond, we're also gonna respond to, through the celebration of the Lord's table. This is where we take the bread and we dip it into the wine or the juice, depending on your conscience, and we remember that it's in Jesus' death that we find our life. And I would encourage you two things as we celebrate communion. First of all, I will say we practice an open table, which means if you're a Christian, you're welcome at the table. If you're not a Christian, we welcome you to become a Christian and give your sin to Jesus and join us at the table for the first time. The two things I want you to think about are this. Number one, as we take communion today, I want you to celebrate and rejoice that Jesus was dead, but he's not anymore. We celebrate his, his broken body and his shed blood that was poured out for our salvation. But you know what? That's not the end of the story because he's alive. We have, a, we have a cross here on the stage and Jesus ain't on it because he's alive. And the second thing I want you to remember as we celebrate the Lord's table today is this. I want you to remember that Jesus himself is the one who strengthens us and nourishes us in our weak faith. Even in this act of eating the bread, I want you to remember that Jesus spiritually nourishes you. He feeds you. He strengthens your faith. And so it's okay to come in a state of vulnerability. It's okay to come not having it all put together. Even in celebrating the Lord's table tonight, you can pray that prayer. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Caleb and the band are gonna lead us in some songs and we're gonna rejoice and celebrate. They're gonna lead us in resurrection songs. I know Easter's not for another couple of weeks, but we're just getting warmed up, okay? It's gonna be a good couple of weeks of celebrating because Jesus is alive, church, amen? So let's stand together. I'll pray and then we'll respond together. God, thank you. Thank you that we do not serve a dead founder, but a risen savior. God, all of us here tonight have our faith in various stages and states of weakness, and we need you. We need your help. We need your help a lot. God, I pray that you would help us steer away from the trap of just trying harder or trying to drum up more faith in our own hearts. God, instead, let us look upon you. Let us look upon the cross of Jesus. Let us gaze into your face and may that strengthen our faith and may we rejoice in you. We pray that we respond now with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Church, let's respond when you're ready.